Huddled Masses' latest podcast, Battleground, wouldn't be possible without the generous support of our sponsors. If, like me, you're unable to sleep because of today's politics, pandemics, pretty much everything Battleground deals with, Helix could be for you. Helix Sleep has a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete and matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. Everybody's unique and Helix knows that, so they have several different mattress models to choose from. They've got soft, medium, firm mattresses, mattresses great for cooling you down if you sleep hot, even a Helix Plus mattress for plus-size folks. I took the Helix quiz and I was matched with a midnight mattress with side sleeper support because I wanted something that felt medium and I sleep on my side. I had a really comfortable night's sleep and it's a big upgrade from what I used to have. It comes vacuum packed so it's easy to roll into the bedroom and unpack. It's soft and easy to fall asleep right away and in fact my dog Scruff is still asleep on it as I speak. So if you're looking for a mattress, take the quiz, you order the mattress you're matched to and it comes right to your door shipped for free. You don't even need to go to a mattress store again. Helix is great, but don't take my word for it. It was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 and by GQ and Wired magazine. So just go to helixsleep.com slash masses, as in huddled masses, take their two minute sleep quiz and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. They've got a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash masses. Hello, I'm Alex Hannaford, and welcome to Battleground. And I'm producer Pete. Alex, today's podcast is a little bit different, isn't it, in that it's something you feel very strongly about? I do, yeah. It's about guns in America. Guns. 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 Gun ownership. Guns. The shooter. Shooting. Gunman. More shots fired. Before any American listeners think, oh great, another limey wading into uh, the debate on guns, why do we care about his opinion? Well, number one, you're not really going to hear my opinion. Um... <laughs> But I've lived here for 16 years. I'm actually a US citizen as well. You know, I have skin in the game, as it were, because I have a a kid in school. Been covering guns as a journalist for a long, long time. And one of those times you'll hear in the podcast, I actually went out and took my license to carry and had gun lessons and bought a gun. So I don't just have opinions on this from afar without having sort of really got in the weeds with it. I mean, that's your sort of personal connection with the issue. Why is there a connection to the election? Um, yeah, so the, the connection to the election is that this is all part of the so-called culture wars. Um, the right think the left want to take away their guns. The left, generally speaking, say we want to bring in legislation to make it safer to own and use a gun. But yeah, it's fascinating and it definitely it becomes an election issue. When Obama became president... There was a run on guns. People wanted to sort of, you know, stockpile guns. Trump has spoken about protecting Second Amendment rights. So I wanted to dive into the nuances of it all. And how are you doing that today? Who are you speaking to? 
So I'm speaking to a guy called Scott Lewis, who is a Second Amendment advocate based in Texas. You've known him a while, haven't you? I've known him a while. I wrote about a phenomenon called campus carry, which was the idea that over in certain states in the US, legislatures were trying to enact legislation which would allow students to bring guns on campus legally. Anyway, Scott was kind of at the forefront of that. He was part of the campus carry movement. And his views on guns and the Second Amendment have evolved over the last few years, actually, since I last spoke to him. So I was kind of fascinated when I I emailed him and asked him if he would come on this podcast. At first, he was like, oh, well, you probably don't want to speak to me because my views have kind of evolved on this. And I said, no, you're exactly who I need to speak to. So that's why he's on. Hey, Scott, can you hear us? Yeah, I can. Give me one sec. I forgot my headphones. (laughs) Okay. My wife and I just moved, and I I can't find anything around here right now. (laughs) Tonight, the sheriff here revealing the worsening toll, at least 59 now dead. Students evacuating with their hands up. Another community is in disbelief, shocked by devastating violence. This is the 18th school shooting already this year. It is just mid-February. I've always kind of felt like eventually it was going to happen here too. I wasn't surprised. I was just scared. This podcast is sort of being listened to by people outside of America as well. So my first question is this. According to the Gun Violence Archive, last year there were more mass shootings in the US than there were days in the year. Uh, For people listening to this outside of the States, they may be confused to hear that Democrats and Republicans pretty much unite behind the Second Amendment of the Constitution, which gives you guys the right to bear arms. The problem doesn't occur where the guns are allowed freely to be carried, to be used by people. I understand and respect the tradition of gun ownership. It goes back to the founding of our country. There are nuances on that, which we'll come to, but the basic tenet is universal. Around, I think it's something in the region of 36,000 Americans are killed by guns each year. That's about the same as those who die in car accidents. So answer this question for an outsider listening now. Why on earth do you want the right to bear arms? I, I think you have to kind of almost reverse engineer the question at this point, which is, at this point, how would you ever remove the right to bear arms? That's a big part of the question. You have to be realistic about what you're trying to accomplish here. There are at least as many guns as people in this country. If you were to try to implement the types of gun controls that we've seen in places like England, you're talking about somehow going out and confiscating hundreds of millions of guns that we don't know where they are. And so realistically, just from a pragmatic standpoint, it's virtually impossible to have that kind of gun control in the U.S. at this point. So you're always kind of working backwards to what you know, what is actually doable here. Now, as far as the Second Amendment, it goes back to kind of an American uh, mentality of self-reliance. You know, Americans like to believe that they are their last line of defense. They don't want to think that if the bad guys get past the cops and the security system and all that, that they're pretty much left defenseless. And I think in the minds of most Americans, that's why they want the right to keep their arms. They want to know that if that worst case scenario where somebody's coming through their bedroom window in the middle of the night with a weapon, you know, intending to do harm, that they're not left throwing books and pots and shouting, get out, that they actually have a, a means to defend themselves. I've never understood that because, you know, America also has one of the, if not the biggest military in the world. So this conversation is always kind of a strange one for me to hear, or an argument is kind of a strange one for me to hear because 
while Americans are sort of saying, look, you know, ultimately we have the right to bear arms in the constitution so we can defend ourselves against a, you know, oppressive government, you know, it's always about we, the people. So if the government are, you know, um, if the people need to take up arms against the government, we can do that. But the fact is you have the biggest military in the world and that military has the sort of hardware you don't really see anywhere else. I mean, helicopter gunships and all the rest of it. If they really wanted to put down the American public, they could. And your AR-15 is not going to do anything against that. Well, I think the argument for the Second Amendment as a deterrent to tyranny is is often oversimplified by both sides. I mean, I certainly think the gun rights side has a tendency to take kind of this Hollywood Red Dawn mentality of, well, if the government ever gets too uppity, we're going to grab our rifles and head to the hills and, you know, wage this insurgency. And it, you know, obviously the that that's a very simplistic view on what it would take to f- fight off an oppressive government. The gun rights movement has done itself a disservice in recent years with a lot of talk about secession and Second Amendment remedies and things like that because it does uh, fall into this kind of simplistic mindset of, well, we'll show them we've got our guns. And I don't think most of the people making those claims have really played it out in their minds. What what I mean, what you're seeing with these politicians is what you've seen in a large part with the the gun lobby and other segments of the gun rights community is they they've spent so much time pandering to these kind of extreme elements in recent years that the rhetoric has become completely detached from reality. You know, if you go back and look at what the gun rights community, what the gun lobby was saying 20 or 30 years ago, it was much more tempered much more in line with kind of the reality of the situation. When we first spoke a long time ago, you I think you were a founding board member, or you are a founding board member, of and uh, a national media coordinator for Students for Concealed Carry, which was pushing for legislation to allow students to carry guns on campus. And when I asked you, this is interesting, when I asked you if you'd come on this podcast, you wrote back to me saying, if you're looking for the perspective of the average gun rights activist, I'm probably not the voice you want. These days, I'm pretty much an ex-activist. And what little involvement I do have with the cause is geared toward trying to get gun rights activists to back away from their culture war mentality and start viewing the issue as a policy discussion. What changed? Uh, the short version of what changed is the election of Barack Obama in 2010. Uh, that that was when we really saw the rise of the Tea Party, and we started seeing a lot of the moderate Republicans kind of drummed out of the party. Uh, you started seeing uh, longtime gun rights activists who were middle-of-the-road gun rights activists, really on both sides of the aisle. You, you saw both Democrats and Republicans who had been kind of moderates in the gun rights movement uh, g- getting primaried. Or the, the Republicans were getting primaried and the Democrats were getting beaten in the general election. And so what happened was these moderate voices who had long been kind of the uh, the benchmark for the gun rights community, they were gone and suddenly it was a debate between the extremists. The NRA went on the offensive at CPAC, blaming the FBI for the massacre in Parkland and also the media. To stop a bad guy with a gun... It takes a good guy with a gun. You know, basically every candidate, every activist was being held to a purity test of, you know, are you ideologically pure on the Second Amendment? You know, when I was with Students for Concealed Carry, our whole issue was we just wanted consistency in the law. We felt that 
you know, somebody who'd gone through training, testing, expanded background checks, gotten a license, they could carry a concealed handgun at a movie theater on Friday, at a shopping mall on Saturday, and at a church on Sunday, but they couldn't carry one into a college classroom on Monday. And we felt like unless they were going to put metal detectors and bag checks at these campuses and make them gun-free and more than name only, it didn't make sense to have this honor system-based policy that was stacking the odds in favor of any criminal or lunatic willing to disregard the rules. And so what we were fighting for was a, a policy issue. We thought if you're going to let people carry their concealed handguns for personal protection everywhere else, let them do so on college campuses. So it's become much more about uh, promoting and maintaining this absolutist view of the Second Amendment. And that's where we started seeing things like open carry marches where, where people are walking down the street with rifles slung over their shoulders. We've seen people showing up at protests with rifles. Take you back to 2008. The shooting rampage Thursday at Northern Illinois University. During a, uh, one tragic week, I think there was five separate school shootings and, and Newsweek did a story on it. And they interviewed you for the story. And you basically said that, uh, in, again, in 2008, that states with the most relaxed concealed carry laws were the safest because armed students could stop shooters before they do harm. And I want to know if more than a decade later, whether you still agree with that. Uh, I vaguely remember the Newsweek article you're referring to. And I, if I recall, they paraphrased some of my quotes. I, uh, uh, there's no correlation between a state's gun laws and its homicide rate. So I think it's hard to make the argument that a state with relaxed gun laws is safer or less safe. If you look at the chart, it, it just looks like a shotgun blast. There's there's uh, data points all over the place. Uh, I, it's not accurate that... I, I, let me put it this way. If you look at the... There's been a lot of research on right to carry laws over the last uh, 30 years. Most of it never gets mentioned. The two we always hear about are the two Johns, John Lott and John Donahue. John Lott has made a career out of claiming that uh, more guns equals less crime. Uh, John Donahue has made it his mission to prove the opposite. The reality is that both of them are outliers. The vast majority of studies have concluded that uh, there's no identifiable correlation between right to carry laws and uh, crime rates or homicide rates. You know, I don't think you can make the argument that concealed carry is making the population as a whole safer. I do think that if somebody is properly trained, it can benefit them personally in certain circumstances. Unfortunately, the situation we've seen over the last decade is that a lot of the training requirements are being relaxed or even removed for obtaining a concealed carry permit or now a carry permit. And so I, I do think that your average license holder is less likely to be able to defend themselves. If you take a good civilian self-defense course, a civilian shooting course, one of the first things you'll learn is don't try to act like a police officer. Don't try to interdict a situation that doesn't involve you. But if you're carrying a gun and you've never had any formal training, what's your first instinct? You hear gunshots, you've got a gun, you think I'm going to go solve the problem. I wrote a story for GQ, British, British GQ magazine, uh, a few years back where I wanted to sort of get inside the, the head of an American gun owner, you know, what you go through to become a license holder, all the rest of it. So I went and bought a gun and I took my then concealed carry permit. And I also had some lessons as well and went to the range. 
But the common refrain you still hear after school shootings particularly is that what will solve this problem is having a sensible gun owner who has their concealed permit or license to carry on their person and they could thwart these these mass shootings, whether it be in a school or wherever. You know, this idea that, oh, you're trained as a concealed carry permit holder or a license to carry, you know, you got your license to carry and that you wouldn't want to get involved in that situation, I just don't believe. I think that the people that I've met that are Second Amendment advocates that want their concealed carry permit or license to carry do see themselves as sort of this kind of hero complex, I think, with a lot of people. I've met a lot of them. And I just want to kind of go on from that. In that story for GQ, my instructor, when I was taking my permit, told me that if you had your license to carry and the police pulled you over for speeding and they found out after running your license plate that you were a license, a gun license holder, the tension would just dissolve. So I started asking police officers on the beat in Austin, just randomly, Vox Pops, where, where you live, whether this was true. And the responses I got were, no, not at all, laughter. And another police officer told me, and this is crucial, I think, if he were called to a shooting incident and a CHL holder was on scene and had removed his gun from his holster to engage the attacker, how on earth would I be able to distinguish between the gunman and the CHL holder? But isn't this the exact same scenario that you were advocating for, at least back in 2008, if not today? You're right that there are a lot of gun owners who have uh, developed this mentality. Again, I think that's the type of thing that we could mitigate with better training. If, if they were getting more of their information from qualified instructors and less of their information from some Yahoo on YouTube, I think that mentality would start to fade away. Certainly among serious shooters, I'm talking about the people who have 50, 100, 200, 300 hours of formal training. You don't see nearly as much of that sheepdog mentality. I don't think that is what Concealed carry was intended for. I don't think that's what the trainers are training towards, but I definitely agree with you that there are people who have that mentality. Now, you said you spoke to a lot of gun rights activists. Well, the people who get most active in the movement are usually not the moderates. You know what I mean? As I've said before, nobody stands outside a state house or a courthouse with a sign that says reasonable compromise. So when you're talking to gun rights activists, when you're talking, you know, when you're listening to what the NRA is saying, when you're hearing these voices, you're hearing the extremes of the movement. You're not hearing the guy who got a concealed carry permit because, you know, he drives his kids to school every day and wants to be able to protect them. You're not hearing the mom who got it because, you know, she works in a bad neighborhood and you know, leaves work late at night. These people are wanting to protect themselves. And I do believe that that's the majority of gun owners and carry permit holders out there. And most of the yahoos who just want to stick a gun in their pocket and go be a hero, they're not going to do that. You weed out a lot of people when you, you put these requirements in that, place. That, and, and that, the problem that is Texas, the Texas license to carry course was 10 hours when I took it. It's, right. That's now three or four. Is that sufficient? No. Uh, and be, be clear, when you took it, it was 10 hours, including the shooting range portion. Now it's four hours, not including the shooting, no, it was shooting 10 range hours, portion. No, it was 10 hours in the classroom, I believe. Well, they, they could do 10 hours in the classroom, but back then the requirement was it had to be between 10 and 15 hours, but that could include the right, portion on the right. range. Now the requirement is it has to be between four and six hours, but that does not that cannot include the portion on the range. So in essence, what happened is they cut it in half. Basically, the minimum course time used to be 10 hours. Now the minimum course time is about five hours. 
No, I don't think it's adequate. There's been a big push by the gun rights activists, by the gun lobby, to do away with all licensing requirements. They call it constitutional carry. The idea is, again, it kind of goes back to this absolutist view of the Second Amendment, which is that, you know, they believe the Second Amendment doesn't really allow any restrictions on the right to keep and bear arms, so there shouldn't be a licensing requirement to carry a gun. And so a lot of these states that have lowered their licensing requirements have done that as kind of a compromise with the constitutional carry activists. They said, okay, well, look, we're not going to go to no requirement, but we'll make it an easy four-hour course. And you took the 10-hour course. I took the 10-hour course. It, I felt when I took it, and I took it a few times, that it was a pretty good course. It wasn't, it wasn't teaching you everything you need to know to be a tactical gun owner. You weren't learning to clear houses or lead SWAT raids or anything like that. But you, you, you came away, I felt, with a very healthy respect for the awesome responsibility of carrying a lethal weapon in public. You came away understanding the basic safety rules. You came away with the, the fundamentals you needed to own and carry a gun. I, I, I have a hard time believing that they're fitting all of that into four hours now. You've described what you call, in your words, the scary reality that no country has ever overcome the circumstances America now faces. In other words, no country's gone from having a lot of guns to and a lot of gun violence, obviously, which we've talked about, to having relatively little gun violence. But you say that doesn't mean it can't be done. What's your solution? We need to focus on who gets the guns up front. I mean, we should not have people buying guns as casually as they do. And that's, again, why I say I'm not no longer in line with the majority of the, the gun rights movement, because they would vehemently disagree with that. Let me put it this way. My views on gun rights have changed a lot over the last uh, 13 which, which, years. Which, without, being, without sounding rude, do you have any regrets then? Do you feel like you were part of the problem? Yes and no. I would say my, I regret that I was not more uh, vocal early on about kind of tamping down some of the rhetoric that tends to follow the gun rights movement. I mean, as I got more involved, I definitely got more deliberate about making sure that the people who were working with me were not using the same simplistic talking points and uh, kind of misapplied statistics and things like that that uh, that, that tend to uh, dilute the arguments, I guess we could say, that, that tend to make, make it easy for, for gun rights advocates to uh, avoid the real discussion. I look back at early interviews I did, and, and I, a lot of the rhetoric I used was kind of simplistic, and I feel like that that fed into that more dogmatic uh, debate that we you know we tend to get surrounding guns. I, I look at the later interviews I did, and I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that I was able to to strike a a more thoughtful balance on those things. A quick word from one of our sponsors. This holiday season, more people will be mailing stuff than ever before, which means the post office is going to be busy. You don't have time for that. So stamps.com brings the post office and now UPS shipping right to your computer. With stamps.com, anything you can do at the post office, you can do with just a few clicks. Plus, stamps.com saves you money with deep discounts that you can't even get at the post office. Stamps.com is a must-have for any business, whether you're a small office sending out invoices, an online seller fulfilling orders during this record-setting holiday season, or even a giant warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Simply use your computer to print official US postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Once your mail's ready, just schedule a pickup or drop off. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, 
you get five cents off every first class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail and up to 62% off UPS shipping rates. Not to mention, it's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, saving you time and money, and it's no wonder that over 900,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. So don't spend a minute of your holiday season at the post office this year. Sign up to stamps.com instead. There's no risk. And with my promo code, masses, as in huddled masses, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. There's no long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in masses. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. So when we talk about what can be done to make America safer. Let's bear in mind that large swathe of people that you just talked about, the the larger sort of, you know, the, the, the gun rights guys that maybe aren't as moderate. So, you know, let's go through some of the things that I think you've advocated for. You've talked about gun registration, but you've also said that's often viewed as a precursor to gun confiscation. Does gun registration, uh, do you think that's a good idea? Gun re- I, I'm, I do not support gun registration for the main reason I don't support it is because it's a non-starter. That is the biggest fear of most, It's a, I guess I would say the penultimate or second biggest fear of most gun rights advocates. They believe that registration is the immediate precursor to confiscation. And, you know, we can look at other countries like England and see that that's true. You know, if, if they know where the guns are, it's very easy to go collect them. Do you think everyone should have a license to uh, have a gun? Uh, yes, I, I think, and again, this this is an area where I've evolved, you know my views have evolved over the years. And again, I spent you know twelve years and well over ten thousand hours uh, researching, writing about, and fighting for this cause. And I think if you spend that much time on a certain issue and your views don't evolve at all, you really need to reevaluate what you've been doing. Situations where people have to submit to real hurdles to get the gun, jump through any types of hoops it weeds out a lot of the bad actors. I, There'll I think be a lot of pushback, at, wouldn't there, from the people we just talked about who, who say sure, it's but, our but, constitutional but right. It doesn't mean you put obstacles in the way. We're going to have to stop putting all of our stock in what the extremists say. There are extremists on both sides of the gun debate, and their policy proposals are largely untenable on both sides. I, you know, on... on the left, you have people talking about, well, we need, you know, an Australia-style gun buyback. Well, I mean, at the time of Australia's gun buyback, they had uh, 1% the total number of guns the U.S. currently does. So we, we got to come up with solutions that are not just fantasies, that are not just, you know, talking points. Do you think it should be mandatory for guns to be locked up? That's a, that's a tricky one. I, I, I kind of go back and forth on this one. Uh, I definitely think people should be held responsible for for uh, allowing their guns to fall into the hands of minors. And, and Texas does have a law that, you know, if, if a minor gets hold of your gun and injures themselves or others, uh, that, that you can be held criminally liable they, for they, that. They and don't, I, though, do they? they? No, Texas does have a law they for that. They have a law yes. for it, but you don't really see it enacted, do you? I mean, the police are, you, you the police are very, very rarely going to prosecute somebody for, you know, they're going to be, it's, it's a big tragedy. You hear these words constantly when something like that happens. It's a tragedy. They're not going to then penalize or prosecute the, the poor family who have, you know, accidentally let the guns fall into their child's hands. Do you have children? I do not. So, do, do you, I do. And um, that's the one thing that I think really, really could change 
uh, a lot of gun injuries and accidents and deaths that we, we we hear about the deaths, but we very rarely hear about gun injuries because they don't make the news. They can't make right. the news because you can't use names of minors in a newspaper article anyway. So what's it going to be? A child aged three was injured when she got hold of her father's gun in Austin yesterday. It's that That is really rarely going to make the news, but it happens more often than you'd think. So I just cannot fathom why anybody who, like you, is coming across, you know, telling me about some really sort of sensible solutions and has said they've moved on uh, an issue over the last decade and that thinks that the sort of moderate, moderate voice has been lost in the gun debate cannot say that locking guns up is a good idea. The, the, the question is one of enforceability and what, how we define locking guns up. I mean, the Supreme Court has ruled that you can't require somebody to leave their guns inaccessible for self-defense. The Second Amendment won't allow laws that, that require a gun to be locked up in a fashion that it's inaccessible. Now, there are gun safes that are accessible for self-defense, and, and I'm a big proponent of those. And I, I strongly recommend... Fingerprint uh, yeah. access, yeah. I, you know, I don't. I personally don't like the fingerprint scanners. I prefer ones that simply have a very easily accessible uh, mechanical keypad on top. Anybody who's used the fingerprint scanner on your phone or your iPad knows that uh, if you're sweaty or something like that, a lot of times they, they they're not very effective. And obviously, if you're under duress, I don't want to be counting on the uh, the fingerprint reader to be able to read through the sweat on my fingers. I'd much rather have a mechanical lock. But there are some very quick access gun locks. As far as the degree to which I think we need to have laws requiring people to lock up their guns, uh, that, that's a very touchy issue, I think, for, for a few reasons. One, as I said, th there are some constitutional issues. You, you can't require them to lock them up in a way where they're not accessible. Uh, two is it's very hard to enforce that unless there has already been an incident. I mean, well, they unless... enforce it in the UK. I mean, my dad has a shotgun for shooting clays, uh, what you guys call skeet shooting. And the local police officer, just from the local police station, comes over, uh, checks that the gun safe is bolted to the wall, that the keys are kept in a different uh, location, signs a bit of paperwork, and background check. It's easy. It's easy if you want the government knowing who has the guns, which again comes into this question of as soon as you start creating any type of registration system, it's not just going to be the extremists who are against it. You're, you're going to start scaring a lot of the moderates because a lot of people have, and, and, and again, I'm, I'm very wary of any type of registration system. I, I, I don't like the idea that, that confiscation could be as easily as looking up a list and going to get them. You know, if, if the government's going to confiscate guns, I want them to know that they're going to have that they're going to have to work for it. This is going to have to be something that they take seriously enough. So, so, so I mean, it has to, to, it has to be a law gun. then that says you have to lock guns up. And then, yes, it would be after the event. But what you're saying is you don't like the idea of a police officer coming and checking that you have a gun safe, but you're not that averse to the idea of it becoming a law that says you have to lock guns up. I mean, it's like a lot of laws. There must be plenty of examples where, you know, a police officer doesn't come and check that you have that in place beforehand. But but if you haven't got it in place and something happens, you're you're going to be in in a lot of trouble. Well, but again, we're we're getting back to kind of the law that's already in place, which says that if if somebody gets hold of the gun and cause, or in this case, it's a minor gets hold of the gun and causes a problem, then uh, yeah, but that's that's minors. I mean, I interviewed a number of mass shooters uh, for a, right. for a separate story I did, and I asked them a number of questions. One of which was, how easy was it to access the gun, and do you think that 
access to the gun or lack thereof could have stopped you doing what you did. And a, a number of them, surprising number of them said, you know, I went down this very, very quick kind of breakdown where I, I, I just knew that day I was seeing red, I was going to go and commit this crime. And if I hadn't gone into my uncle's back room where I knew his his um, rifle was propped right. up against the wall, I wouldn't have done it. Um, uh, another one- well, and, and that's that's the same thing we see with suicides. I mean, one right. of the things pe- people don't talk about a lot is that gun ownership is a risk factor for suicide. In fact, almost two thirds of US gun deaths are suicides. Right. You know, you cited that statistic earlier, there's about 30,000 US gun deaths each year. Well, almost 20,000 of those are suicides. Firearms are the leading cause of suicide. 87% of the firearm deaths are suicides. Investigators say 58-year-old Ralph Kilata took his own life at the Oak there Ridge gun range yesterday. There have been a rash of these types of suicides across the country. Rented a gun and them. took his own life. One of the things they found is that if people don't have immediate access to the gun, most of the time they don't kill themselves. Of course, yeah. They, I mean, like, you know, if, it's, if it's they, a pretty fail-safe to... way to kill yourself if you have access to but, a gun. Right, but e- even if they just have to work to get the gun, most of the time, Kind of like you said about the mass shooters, you have to be in this certain mindset at the certain moment and have access to the gun. And so I, I, I'm dubious that laws requiring people to lock up their guns would be particularly effective. But I agree, one of the biggest things we could do to prevent mass shootings and to prevent suicides in this country is to make guns less accessible. Let, let, let's talk about the election. So, um Joe Biden has, uh, I think, I think, just to give sort of some context, in 1993, he shepherded through Congress the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act, which established the background uh, syst- uh, check system. I wonder what you think of his plans to end gun violence. I mean, he's, you know, he's on his platform, he's saying he'll respect the Second Am- Amendment, but among other things, he's pledged to ban uh, a, what he calls assault weapons and high capacity magazines. He wants to regulate possession of existing assault weapons under the National Firearms Act. He wants to launch a buyback scheme, which you've already said you don't agree with, for assault weapons, restrict the number of weapons someone can buy to one per month and close the gun show loophole, among other things. Um, Trump has said Biden is against God and against guns. He's against God. He's against guns. Would you feel unsafe if Biden gets elected? Do you agree with his policies? Uh, So I'll preface this by saying I fully intend to vote for Joe Biden. But with that said, I, I I do not think he is particularly well informed on the gun rights issue. I think he falls back on a lot of uh, dated ideas that kind of date back to his time in Congress. A lot of them date back to the you know the 1990s, kind of the stuff that was being pushed at that time. Not so much because there was strong evidence that it was going to prevent gun violence, but because there was a feeling that it's what could actually get passed. Joe Biden is out with a new op-ed calling for the assault weapons ban to be reinstated, arguing that it worked. Uh, Joe also pointed out that there was polling showing that 70% of Americans support the ban on military-style weapons, which was enacted in 1994, but allowed to expire 10 years later. I I think if he would focus on more, you know, this idea that we're going to solve the problem with assault weapons, which... The short version is that assault weapons don't do much that that most other guns can't do. You know, if you look at an assault weapon, it has the same rate of fire as a semi-automatic handgun. So if we're going to get rid of assault weapons, which are used by most counts, uh, less than 5% of gun homicides. What about mass shootings? uh, 
uh, they're using about 20% of mass shootings. I, I think most of what he has proposed is kind of going back to, well, we just have to get rid of the bad guns. You know, we're going to let people keep their handguns, but we're going to ban the most dangerous guns. Well, the most dangerous guns statistically are the handguns. I'm just reading now an analysis by the Rockefeller Institute of Government found that mass shootings that involved assault rifles resulted in an average of 5.2 deaths and 7.6 injuries, while mass shootings that didn't involve assault rifles resulted in an average of 2.9 deaths and 3.2 injuries. And the most deadly mass shootings, if we forget the ones of four people and we just think of the, the ones that, you know, uh, are really, really just, just masses of people, Las Vegas, Orlando, Sutherland Springs, Newtown, El Paso and elsewhere, involve one or more assault weapons. If you look prior to the last few years, the, the list of deadliest mass shootings included several with handguns. Now, we've seen a spate of them in recent years, and they have involved more assault weapons. But the, uh, you, know, you look at uh, the Luby's Massacre in 1990 in uh, Galene, Texas, Virginia Tech Massacre, uh, a lot of mass shootings with, with high fatality rates involving just handguns. Now, the fact that more shooters are now using assault weapons uh, and that the shootings are getting more deadly... You know, I, I think, first of all, I think the uh, the worst mass shooting, which was Las Vegas, is an outlier because he was using bump stocks to fire. It was essentially fully automatic fire. You can call it pseudo-automatic fire because technically the bump stock causes you to pull the trigger for each fire, but, but it mechanically allows you to pull the trigger much faster than humanly possible. That's not your, your typical mass shooting. If you look at the numbers in the other mass shootings in recent years, they have not been significantly higher, you know, the highest, uh, mass, the highest fatality rates using handguns. We have to be careful not to confuse correlation with causation. The fact that we're seeing more shooters using, okay. uh, using assault weapons and, the, 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 you know, the fatality rates are going up mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mean that the fatality rates are going up because, because they're of using the assault weapons. Scott, let's talk about um, Trump briefly. So his record on guns is is kind of confusing. So he's tweeted, liberate Virginia and save your great Second Amendment. It's under siege. And he was directing that at Democratic Governor Ralph Northam. But he's also voiced support for background checks on all firearm sales, establishing an extreme risk protective order, which is what we just talked about, which allows police to take guns from someone who's been deemed a danger to themselves or others. Are you happy with Trump's record on gun reform? I mean, to be honest, I'm not happy with Trump's record on much. Um, He's so inconsistent on gun policy, I, it's hard to know exactly where he stands. You know, he took executive action on bump stocks. Today, he directed the attorney general to propose a ban on bump stocks. That device was used by the shooter in Las Vegas. I absolutely believe that bump stocks need to be banned because going back to my previous point about, you know, banning all weapons capable of equivalent carnage. Well, if we're going to, you know, we essentially ban machine guns. So why would we allow a device that takes a semi-automatic rifle and turns it into, for all intents and purposes, a machine gun. It ought to be banned. Now, the fact that he used an executive order to do that, I think, is, is a little dubious just because the ATF had already issued a letter stating that these, uh, these devices were legal. A lot of people had gone out and purchased them under, the un, you know, under that understanding that these devices were legal. And then he essentially issued a, an executive order saying, no, they're not legal. And so now you know, the ATF is, is ordered to try to confiscate them. I, I, don't, I don't think that was the way to handle that. In that case, I think Trump 
was trying to accomplish the right goal. I think he did it the wrong way. Like I said, it's, it's so hard to know where he stands. Like he comes out, one point he was considering a ban on assault weapons and then he was vehemently against it. You know, if he supports a ban on assault weapons, I would obviously disagree with that, but I don't know that he does. Do you think um, that more moderate voices like yours will get lost in the future? in like the next five, 10 years? You know, honestly, I think it'd go either way at this point. I I mean, I think moderate voices like me have certainly become the minority. You're not hearing from us like you used to. Certainly in, in the, over the last 10, 20 years, the moderate voices have disappeared. However, I think with some of the turmoil now going on inside the NRA, uh, you know, with the NRA potentially losing some of its clout, and with the fact that we're likely going to see if Joe Biden wins if the Democrats take control of the Senate, I think the gun rights community is going to see a much steeper road ahead of them in in the next few years. And I think it's going to be necessary to have moderate voices come to the table because the extremists, the people who are taking an absolutist view of the Second Amendment and, you know, carrying their rifles through the produce aisle of the grocery store, nobody's going to listen to them. And so I'm hopeful that maybe what we'll see in the next few years is more of a discussion between the moderates. Now, if that doesn't happen, I do feel like, in a lar- to a large extent, the gun rights community has nobody but themselves to blame. I mean, it- it's going to backfire on us. And the only thing I can hope is that from the ashes arises this phoenix of, of moderate gun rights ad- activists like me who can say, look, you know, there's a lot of issues we need to address, but let's make sure we're focusing on the ones that will actually, you know, make a difference down the road. Scott, that was really, really fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for chatting to me. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me. That interview was a bit different out of everything we've done before in that you could tell it's a subject that you're very passionate about. You did give him quite a grilling at times. Uh, Yeah, I suppose I've done a lot of stories on guns and one of the criticisms that I think the media gets uh, or certain sections of the media get from Second Amendment advocates is that they get some of their facts and some of their terminology wrong so it sounds like they haven't sort of done their research and I made a concerted effort a while back to kind of when I did my gun license to kind of learn everything I could so that when I uh, did stories on guns, I knew what I was talking about and couldn't be accused of, of that. So I know a lot about the subject and I was sort of really, really excited to talk to Scott, particularly because let's face it, you know, this was a guy who a number of years back was instrumental in bringing about massively controversial legislation, this campus carry bill, which was really, really divisive. And here I am talking to him a number of years later and found, find myself sort of agreeing with a lot of what he said. So he's definitely tamed his rhetoric. I think his position is much more measured and sensible. Um, and that was pretty interesting. So in terms of divisions within American society, from speaking to Scott, are you quite hopeful that there's a sort of middle ground to be found? You know, Trump definitely uses, he, he mentions the Second Amendment in his campaign speeches and stuff in these rallies because he knows that it fires up a section of the base that are very, very passionate about that. What I think is interesting is that voices like Scott's, um, are, which is a sort of moderate voice now, 
really could change minds. I think, uh, you know, the big question is how can voices like Scott's be amplified? Because here's a guy who no one can accuse of being, you know, left wing when it comes to guns or whatever. I mean, Scott was responsible for the campus carry bill coming into effect. He's a big Second Amendment guy. If his voice can be amplified, maybe he can make other Second Amendment enthusiasts realize that there is a sort of compromise here. And I suppose in terms of sort of themes that came up in that interview that we've heard in the previous episodes of Battleground, he sort of mentioned YouTube and people being influenced by sort of lunatics on YouTube and, and also kind of extremists pulling the discourse like away from the, the middle ground. It's, it's kind of interesting that these things are coming up again and again. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's going to be like a perennial question. Like how do we, how do we tackle... Uh, misinformation and dangerous information on social media you know where youtube and twitter and facebook can address it but ultimately if they if they do and people don't like their kind of free speech being thwarted then ultimately what's going to happen is there are going to be other platforms that emerge to fill the void like parlay um, which is sort of emerged as this kind of right-wing alternative to twitter where anything goes so for people who've been kicked off of twitter they just go they straight, go straight on, on there. there so you know i i don't have the answers to that and and there's always going to be why not because <laughs> um, i'm not running for president pete in fact i can't because i'm british you are white and male though and protestant so you're nearly there <laughs> well that's the problem isn't it it is All right, Al, I think that's enough for now. Give me some credits. The credits, Pete, are... Battleground is presented by me, Alex Hannaford, our producer and sound engineer. As always is Peter Sale. Our theme music is Three Girls Sitting Across the Bar by Hidden Twin. Special thanks again to Scott Lewis for chatting to me today. Battleground is a DMT media production for Audioboom.